Buzz Good Evening Mets fans and welcome back to the Buzz Good Evening Podcast. My name is Sam Libowitz, always joined alongside Jack Hendon. Um, we're going to talk some Mets baseball today because this team has been playing some good baseball for like the first time in a while. And, you know, before we jump in, just want to say we knew this was going to happen. We knew like Jack, we knew that they were going to. We knew that they were going to play some good baseball against these crappy teams and pull us right back in. And guess what? They're pulling us right back in. I don't know if I thought they were going to do that. I don't know. I mean, I guess with the way they ended their series against the Nationals, because it was a good latter two games, they would be in a good spot. But the way that all that goodwill just like instantly got killed by the controversy that pervaded the, the next 24 to 48 hours, it felt like best case scenario they would play like how many games was this how many games are we at now like 10 games between these teams no it's more like eight or nine but like we would have been like five and four or maybe six and three and it wouldn't have really meant a great deal because we all would have just been turned off to the team because of what was said um so I didn't see it I didn't see myself getting so sucked back into it but they have played so well Read them the standings. Can we, should we start with the standings? I think it's the best place to start. Yeah, let's start with the standings. Well, the Mets this week, first of all, they, they've won seven of their last eight. Uh, it has six-game win streak going before a loss in game two on Saturday. And now they're a game over 500. They're 69 and 68. So, you know, if they lose, you know, the opener in the next series and uh, I wouldn't necessarily be mad because it's the, you know, the best record you can have in baseball, the nicest record you can have in baseball. The, the Mets entering play on Labor Day on Monday are three and a half out of first place in the NL East. A week ago, what was it, seven and a half? Yeah, we were talking about seven and a half. We were like, oh, well, they beat the Nats today, so they're seven and a half out. Like that was after a good day. They were seven and a half out. Yeah, so. The, so the Mets have been able to gain a little bit of ground in the standings. Three and a half out in the NL East and three and a half out in the NL Wild Card um, with two teams ahead of them. Only two teams ahead of them in the Wild Card standings, the Phillies and the Cardinals, both two ahead of them. And, of course, the Phillies are a game and a half ahead of them. Um, those two teams are two games out of the second Wild Card. Of course, the Phillies also a game and a half ahead of the Mets in the NL East too. So, oh boy. Is it not, is it not three? Say it because again. You, got a, you have the, I would imagine one of the Dodgers Giants gets first wild card and then it's like Padres Reds are fighting for the other one. So we're behind three teams, aren't we? It would be like Padres, uh, Phillies, Cardinals, I think. Um, Oh, Padres, yeah, they're That's, free falling. It's it's easy to forget that they're still doing things because they really so, are tumbling. There are. Yeah, because um, there's two teams tied for the first spot mm-hmm. and then there's two teams tied for the second spot. Obviously, that first spot, it's whoever's leading the NL West doesn't get it. So right now, the Giants and Dodgers are tied atop the NL wildcard standings. And then for the second spot. Um, bar, you know, obviously that's going to change depending on who wins Sunday night baseball tonight. This is being recorded before that game starts. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second wild card spot currently tied between the Padres and in the and the Reds. So yeah, you're right. Uh, that's my mistake. There, the um, the Reds. This is right, essentially right now. It's the Reds, Phillies, and Cardinals ahead of the Mets. If you have the the Padres in that second spot, 
Um, but because the Padres and, and the Reds are effectively tied, um, it's percentage points, I think, in favor of the, the Padres, but because uh, they have one fewer loss and one fewer win. So, uh, yeah, the, it's, it's doable. It's doable. This is doable. And I hate to say it, um, they are sucking me back in a little bit. I haven't had a lot of time to watch this week because first week of classes, all that stuff, getting back into the thick of college. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're playing decent baseball. I know against bad teams, and I know they've had a couple of very near like bad losses, especially in this national series. Yeah. Um, the nine nothing game that they almost blew, and then today they were up at four nothing in the first inning, and then it was six six when you you know blinked. On Friday, they were up two to nothing and they blew that lead too. Right. Every game was just this, except for the one they lost, I guess. Yeah. I mean, we've gotten here off of several hitches across the week. Those are just the ones in Washington, right? We have because Saturday, man. Saturday, I'm so happy I wasn't watching that first game. I wasn't watching the second one either. But the first one, man, I checked that it was nine nothing, put the phone away. Checked a little while later, it was nine to three. I was like, all right, well, it's the fourth inning and it's a seven inning game. Like, and it's the, you know, Stroman got out of that on his own terms. It'll be fine. And then it slowly ticks up to nine to five and then nine to seven. And then once we got to Andrew Stevenson, literally Andrew Stevenson, literally Andrew Stevenson with two outs and, the, and, a, and a runner in scoring position down two, and he hits a home run. Um, I mean, it just felt like God wanted us to lose. That's honestly how it felt. It was, it was so much more embarrassing than anything the Nationals had done to fall behind nine to nothing. And they've had a really bad season. They've done a lot of things terribly. They've blown a lot of leads. As we saw, they played a lot of bad baseball. Um, for the Mets to kind of just like roll over there was really upsetting. But in the same breath, to actually win those games, I, I tweeted this out and I don't really get, I think, the same engagement just because like my tweets are usually like a little bit more like what everyone's thinking. But this one wasn't really. Um, I thought I would get more shit for it. But I basically said that when like when you're the team that blows your nine nothing lead and then you hang on to win, that's almost as cool as coming back from down nine nothing, because once you've blown your nine nothing lead. Nobody in the building thinks you're going to win the game. Nobody watching thinks you're going to win the game. It's pretty much the same odds that are stacked against you in both situations for them to do what they did. Like for Trevor made a pitch the way he did in the 10th inning or not the 10th, the eighth inning. Cause it was a seven inning game. Like that was amazing. Um, that was really, really clutch. And then, you know, of course it's Lindor who hits the home run in, uh, in the eighth to, or the ninth, sorry, to, to, put them over the top. And then again, today he gives them the insurance run. Like this is just how it was drawn up. Yeah. Um, Francisco Lindor is so cool. Yeah. Cause I mean, he hit the an insurance home run today on Sunday and the guy is just so cool. And I'm glad he's back on the field and they have played a lot better baseball with him back. Once he got his feet under him, you know, he got his legs under, he got his sea legs under him. Um, Cause it was kind of unfair that he, uh, you know, kind of came back without a rehab assignment. I mean, the numbers in the last week are not like great for him, five for 23, but two homers, he's got six RBIs. And he had what a three RBI day in that, that nine, nothing game. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Like he's been, it's, it's fun to watch him play baseball when he's playing well. And then, you know, who all it's also fun to watch play baseball 
when he's playing well. Javier freaking Baez, man. Javier Baez, yep. Four for four with a homer and a stolen base on Sunday. He's nine for 22 this week since the Thumbs incident. Like, two doubles in that span, another home run in that span. Like, the dude exudes coolness when he's playing good baseball. And I know we've talked a little bit of smack about him since he's been a Met because he's played some bad baseball too. But uh, Baez and Lindor were exactly what the Mets needed them to be this week. Um, and, and they're not the only guys who were kind of clicking this week. Um, obviously, we talked thumbs last weekend, but since then, the whole team's been hitting. Yeah. Pilar. Oh. Pilar, a couple of clutch homers, including a grand slam to put today's game on ice. Yeah. Conforto, 8 for 25, a pair of homers. Alonzo, 9 for 28, five doubles and a triple. Hasn't gone deep this week. Didn't need to. VR, 12 out of 30 with three homers. He's the leadoff man. He's the, the new leadoff, leadoff man, dude. Nimmo's hurt, but he was 9 for 23 before he went down with the hamstring injury. McNeil even was, was 5 out of 20 with a double. So he was hitting 250. Like, best offensive team in baseball this week. First in the National League in batting average on base percentage and slugging percentage. Mm-hmm. Like, they, this, is, this was what we were envisioning. Yeah. I mean, season. a team that could just mash on any yeah. given day. I mean, I'm trying to, I think, be measured about it, right? Because like you oh, said it's, earlier, it's these the are national. bad teams. They're yeah. the Nationals. It's the Nationals and it's the Marlins, like especially the Nationals. Like Austin Voth and Eric Fetty have been cruising for a bruising for like three years. And this is the first time the Mets have done it to either of them, really. And admittedly, and to their credit, they did it to Voth twice. But like, you know, it, it's... First off, it's good that they're actually responding against bad teams. Like, you know, they're, they're smelling blood in the water and they're doing something, um, you know, to, to get after it. You need to actually, like, develop some semblance for what good hitting is, what a good hitting approach is. I mean, they, they, they've been on the ball with defense the whole year. But, you know, you need to, I think, get really into, like, a habit of winning when you get ready to play these bad teams. I think I'm not a huge, like, believer in momentum, right? Um, I'm not someone who thinks that like what happens in one game trickles into the next because these are professional baseball players like they're not middle schoolers or high schoolers who who linger on things like they've made it here because they can they have short memory spans but um, I would not you know I think that those that three and was it three and ten that they that stretch against the Dodgers and Giants I think that would have yeah I think that would have gone a, a little bit better if they really like tied down loose ends against the Marlins and Phillies, because even at that point, I mean, there's the obvious like statistical component here, which is you would have more wins built up to protect you against losing all those games. But also like you just, you know, I guess I am kind of advocating for momentum. I don't know. I, I think it's, you know, it would have been a lot more surprising if they had gone into that three and 10 after having, after having played good baseball, I expect them to play bad baseball a little bit less now. Um, I guess it's like, you know, a given that they're going to hit the Nationals as well as they have, but considering they haven't done it like all year and now they are, and they're doing it. They're also, it's not even so much that they're like scoring nine runs or they're scoring 13 runs. They're putting runs on the board after those like dry spells that they go through in the game also where prior, you know, in prior circumstances this year, they would score maybe two in the first and then never score again. And that would be a theme through the entire game. They're, they're reversing course in the eighth and ninth innings to make sure that 
whatever they put on the board is going to stick. Um, that's a that's a pretty I think that's not necessarily something you measure. It's not something you can track, but it's something that as a fan makes watching the games a lot easier. And I'm sure as a player in the clubhouse, like or in the dugout, it makes you know it, it takes the edge off because Gary said it, and I think he's really right. Like there hasn't really never been a game in the last three weeks that the Mets have played where they had a lead and it didn't become a close game after they had the lead um, to actually come out winning these games, despite that constant like roller coaster is something to, to speak for. Yeah. Uh, that two and 11 stretch between the Dodgers and giants is, is so just unfortunate that the timing of it, and the way that they were playing when they went into it and during it was so unfortunate because, man, if they were playing a little bit better baseball, obviously there are, what, eight of those games were one-run losses? Yeah. They are playing a little bit better baseball. They were hitting the ball a little bit better. The pitching was fine, that, that stretch. But yeah. if they had just scratched out a couple more wins, a couple more wins, they'd be in first place right now. You know? Uh, yeah. Those are three and a half out. They're three behind the, the, the Braves in the win column. That's you're looking at three games. Yeah. Well, that, that, yeah. Three games that if you score, you know, an extra couple runs, that you turn those L's into W's because you don't are- start Jared Eikhoff. I mean, that Eikhoff game, I can't stop thinking about it. I, I did not actually expect when I was talking about this as much as I was talking about it that I would still have to be talking about it. If this season ends and they and they somehow miss this division by one game, that's the game I'm going to be thinking about. I don't really, I really don't care what happens the last three games of the season. If they if they're out of this by one game, I'm looking at that because that was a game that they pretty much decided whether that was the front office or management or whomever that they were going to punt that game. Um, that yeah. said, three and a half out. You have your season ending with three games against the Braves. You pretty much just have to play a half game better than they are playing right now the rest of the way up to that point to have a chance. Yeah. So that's how I'm trying to stay level with it. But you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of um a lot of lost time because they didn't play so well for a while. Yeah. And and the wild card is also a possibility here. We mentioned that there's a couple teams ahead of them too. I mean, the Mets get a a series with the Cardinals who are ahead of them. They have another series with the Phillies who are ahead of them in both. And um, they're done with both the Padres and the Reds, but um, you know, that's kind of a, well, let the chips fall where they may situation. Yeah. Uh, but this is doable. Ah, ah, I really, it's scary, but it's doable with what? 24 games left to play. Um, 24, 25 games left. 25. To play. Yeah. Uh, down three and a half is is not insurmountable in in the slightest. Crazier things have happened. They just got to keep winning baseball games. Really, it's it's that simple. The Braves, the Braves' schedule is a little harder than the Phillies' schedule. The Mets' schedule is probably a little bit harder than both. Uh, because we're we're done with the Nationals now. Correct. I believe so. I'm pretty sure the only teams I can check the schedule again, but I'm like 95% sure we're done with Washington Um, loading. Yeah. No more Washington. We have, we have three in Miami uh, and a makeup game against them at some point. Probably if there might be a doubleheader squeezed in there, we have 
uh, three more at home against Miami before we go to Atlanta to end the season. And we have oh, three, yeah. that's, three that's against Philly after uh, our home stand against the Cardinals and a home stand against the Yankees. The Yankees are actually like playing kind of well. They, they had a bad loss today, but. Yeah, they somehow, they seem to not really be able to beat the Orioles as much as they should. Yeah. Um, I mean, they were, that was always every year that they had played against the Orioles. It had pretty much always been a game of like eight people sit and watch Glaber Torres, like run rough shot over the entire team. Like, I'm not that surprised that they're having trouble now because it's just like, it really was just one dude, you know, whipping their asses every time. Um, but that's, that's actually going to be kind of exciting. They're going to have um, the September 11th game at city field against the Yankees, which I don't think has ever happened. I don't think we've ever had the Subway Series coincide with the anniversary of September 11th. It's going to be a 20-year anniversary, so I'm sure they'll have something planned. But Yeah, definitely going to be, I would imagine, some sort of ceremony for that. It's a Saturday night game, too. Yeah, it'll be uh, both. both so I'm look, yeah, I'm kind of oddly looking forward to seeing what they have in store there. I wonder if they bring Mike Piazza back mm-hmm. um, for that one. Probably bring some Yankees onto the field, too, just – given the the nature of the event, I would think. Yeah. Um, so that'll be interesting. That's that's a week. That's less than a week out. That's on Saturday. Yeah. Um, of course, it, you know, it's the Mets. So even in a week where they win all these baseball games, there's always some uh, not so great things that are going on in Mets land. Um, of course, there's been a front office shakeup since last we spoke to you guys because – our general manager, acting general manager, um, decided to drive drunk. Uh, so Zach Scott's DUI is kind of uh, casting a shadow over the org, or at least it was for a couple of days, and that's uh, an older news cycle at this point. Um, man, that was – it's just – they keep swinging and missing on these front mm-hmm. office guys. Yeah, it's definitely uh... – it's definitely pretty bad optics. Putting him on administrative leave is, is important. Um, some people pointed this out. I was kind of like on the fence about how I felt about it, but it is really true. Like, you know, Sandy Alderson penned that letter, right, about Javi Baez and Kevin Pilar and Francisco Lindor taking part in the thumbs down. And like, listen, I understand that the fans are the people that are buying your tickets. You have to appeal to them a certain way. Um, so you really need to drive the point home that you're upset with players like slighting fans, whether they mean to or not. There's nothing in the world. There's no code of conduct. There's no rule anywhere saying you can't bring that same kind of energy down on someone in your front office, embarrassing your organization, going out and drinking, trying to drive back through White Plains at four in the morning and refusing to take a breathalyzer test like that was like a two sentence address. And, you know, again, like words are, you know, they, they don't erase the actions. They don't ease or, or convince me things are any different if they put out a whole statement, but it's just one of those things where like just juxtaposed against each other. It was also really embarrassing to, to, to take a look at. Um, And what's also kind of just frustrating about it is now like we have this, this ongoing, like, GM search thing happening. I mean, part of me like misses when we had like Terry and Sandy there for like five, six years in a row. And we never, ever needed like, this seems to happen all the time where we're like floating names around. Like, I'm just, 
can we just get like competent people in here and not have to worry about it anymore? Like, yeah, you know, we just, can we just hand a blank check to Eric Neander or David Stearns and just like be done with it for a decade? Like, just hire someone. I don't like, I don't want to hear about it anymore. I really don't want to read articles. I mean, listen, I know that people put a lot of time and effort into writing them. I'm not saying they're bad articles. I don't, I don't need to be told how great Moneyball was. Like, I, I really don't care about Billy Bean. Um, it's not 2003. I'm not interested. I'm arguably, I'm honestly, I'm not interested in Theo Epstein either. Every leak yeah. that's come out seems to suggest that he's enjoying his job, you know, in the commissioner's office a lot. Great. You don't have to pay him anything extra to get him over here. You can find people who are just as smart as he is. He broke two curses. That's, that's it. That's, that's what you're hinging on. And you're doing that, forgetting that this is the Mets. And it's not like a Cubs curse or it's a, or a Red Sox curse. It's, it's very different. Um, it's, it's a curse of incompetency and bad culture. And I'm sorry, like, I understand the appeal to Theo Epstein. I do. I really do. You mentioned the curses. Dude's done it twice. Dude has stepped in with big, famous teams that don't win a lot and made them winners. However, there's his regimes are like problematic. They're, they are, he runs his front offices like frat houses. We got Porter and Scott from him, didn't we? Yeah. Porter, one from the Cubs, one from the Red Sox. Porter was with him down in Boston at the start of his career. He was hired into baseball by Epstein. And Zach Scott was with the Cubs at the same time as Theo Epstein. So, I mean, we just hired two guys that were Theo uh, disciples, and look what happened. One uh, was a sex pest, and the other one was a maybe you know i i'm be willing to chalk up the dui as you know an honest mistake but it was incredibly uh, someone at risk yeah it was it was incredibly stupid um and i don't really want that i mean it's who knows if zach scott was going to be here after this offseason but he's on administrative leave right now and and that just makes it makes the odds of a front office shakeup that much more uh, likely, and I, I don't see his job surviving uh, of president of baseball operations coming in here, especially if Sandy Alderson is out, um, yeah. which we honestly hope because, again, he's like 73 and the game is pretty clearly passed him by. Uh, and he's, a very, he's very smart from a 73-year-old executive. However, it's I don't think it's so much that he's 73 as much as it is just that, like, he kind of operates at a at like a uh, a beat that no one else is operating by because it's outdated. Yeah, I don't know if that makes. Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a different way of saying his style is outdated. I mean, he was absolutely he's a he's a brilliant man and he was absolutely brilliant in 1989, but it's not in 1989 anymore. And yeah, um, that's not to say he hasn't had a great career. He's had an amazing career, but um, probably time to to hang up the the spikes there, Sandy. Uh and a big part of the reason why the Mets weren't able to hire the president of baseball operations that they wanted to hire this past offseason was because of Sandy's involvement with the team. Yeah. Uh, he was going to be someone that they had to report to. And he, that means that if you're the president of baseball operations, but you still have someone to report to between the you, yourself and the owner, are you really the top guy? Yeah. Uh, and even if Sandy's role wasn't necessarily defined, it was still um, – enough to kind of keep guys away and so if sandy fades off you know either outside of the baseball operations side if he takes like the team president role and and is doing the business stuff that would be fine uh 
if he just, you know, retires off into the sunset, takes a job in the commissioner's office, goes back to Oakland, even whatever, whatever he wants to do, he kind of has all these options open to him. Uh, the, the key would be that he's no longer involved in the baseball operations side, which right. would give the, op- which would give Steve Cohen the opportunity to hand whoever he wants a blank check um, without concern of them saying no, really. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, and this is something where I'm not really as a fan uh, and I follow this stuff a lot, right? I'm not someone who isn't engaged. I make these kinds of decisions the same way I like pick out politicians. It's not so much like, do they do something I like? It's more like, all right, well, do they do things that I don't like? And if they do, I don't want them. Like, cause they're just, you know, there's so much that I wouldn't know anyway. So I almost don't like to like stack up those candidates and compare them. And I know that's like fun for people and that's interesting and I'm not knocking it. You know, that's something people like to do have at it, but you know, like Michael Hill, Ben Zosmer, David Stearns, Eric Neander, like, I don't know, just, just, just get somebody that, you know, I already know I don't like, or that I, that I already know I don't have a problem with, if that makes sense. Just as as long as someone does that, as long as Steve Cohen takes care of that, like, and I, I don't, I still don't really know how to judge that uh, aspect of things because this wasn't really an off season where the team, like, spent like the Yankees or Dodgers. They had a good off season. They made, shrewd decisions and acquisitions but i don't necessarily know if i couldn't tell you right now if we're going to sign if we're going to hire a general manager or a president of baseball operations who is going to be you know uh adamant about signing trevor story or carlos correa that's my take on it but that's i mean that's the gm stuff um we had some fun baseball stuff too obviously that happened earlier in that week or i guess later in that week Right. Because the Scott thing happened like Monday morning after a after a team event that people left at like 9 p.m. There was a brief moment where everyone was playing detective, like, well, who knew he was drunk and who was who left with him and where did everyone else go? But like, no, he was he went somewhere afterwards and stayed there till four until he was sauced enough to get in his car and and get in trouble. Um, Right after that game, they had the Tuesday game and that was a really like disappointing, I think, start the doubleheader against the Marlins because people were just booing mercilessly. Um, and I listen, I know that it's the thing. I know that's what people want to do, but, and they're the fans and the customer's always right. Um, anyone who says the customer's always right, by the way, like to justify their behavior is usually behaving like an asshole. That's something that like everyone seems to understand everyone around that person will always understand except for the customer but like I was really embarrassed just secondhand embarrassment watching people hold up the signs that they did like you made a sign to you know you're already going out of your way to pay for the pay the ticket you know pay for the ticket get to the stadium get to your seats you paid for like nice seats you you're gonna boo your player and you're gonna make a sign that you're gonna hold up and then the thumbs down guy who held it up the wrong way like whatever um in hindsight though i'm like i'm just so glad that they won that game it was just gonna be it was going to be that conversation for four more weeks if they didn't show up in that game and win it we were gonna have this discourse nonstop, and to win especially to win the way that they did uh they had they, they got four hits in a row with two out in that ninth inning um that was fun yeah Dom, Alonzo, Baez, and then Conforto all got two out hits. 
Each of them just stepped in and did a job. I thought for sure when they brought Blyer into the game for Alonzo, uh, that was going to end our, our, our run, but it didn't. Like, the hit was great. Uh, you know, Baez's base running was incredible. I mean, we've seen it with the slides. We've seen it, obviously, with the defense, even when he wasn't a Met. It's really something else watching this guy when he has eyes on what's happening and he's in fifth gear. It's almost like something that would scare me as a, as, as an opposing player. Um, and then I think the best, the best thing really thing that beat all of that, because there weren't even that many people in the stands when that happened. Cause it was a weird, like makeup game. There were maybe like a thousand to 3000 people there. Um, but the booth SNY, the way they shot that moment, the way Gary called it, the way Ron called the moments leading up to it, everything about that from every angle was bliss. I was watching that over and over again for like 48 hours, like well after other games had been played, I was still transfixed on this one play at the plate. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's one of my favorite Gary calls of all time. Uh, the, the one line at the end where he goes like turn those thumbs upside down or, or turn the thumbs around. Yeah. Turn those thumbs around. That's, Man, that I have to imagine he thought about something to that extent, saying something like that if the situation arose, because broadcasters never come unprepared. But man, that moment, you couldn't have asked for a better moment to call. And that because it was it was Bias who scored the run and he was the one who was kind of embroiled in the, the controversy with the thumbs down. Yeah. And he's the only reason that run scored. No other Met does that. Yeah, I mean, any other base runner, you think Jorge, I mean, it's, I understand it's Jorge Alf- Alfaro in left field on that play, who's a catcher by trade, but you think that that Baez being the base runner in front of him didn't have a, a role to play on him yeah. booting that ball? Like, it absolutely did, because it's Javi Baez. Like, I wouldn't have put it past Javi to even try to score on that play had he fielded it correctly. Yeah, Nimmo wasn't scoring if that ball is kicked. I mean, no one scores on because Alfaro's got a good arm, too. That's his thing. He's a butcher with his, you know, he doesn't have good hands in left field, but he made a pretty good throw home. I think if the catcher had caught it, they would have had him out. Alex Jackson just completely whiffed on the ball. Umpire was positioned to call him out and then didn't. Um, Yeah, that was the way I'd never heard Gary scream like that either. Oh, yeah. And Baez was coming in. I mean, that was like something from like. It was a long call. He was out of breath. Yeah. Yeah, that was, and then they have, of course, like the Dunkin' Donuts, like the the call cam or whatever, and it's just like the silliest thing because you just see these three personalities with Keith just religiously scoring the game, not honestly, not even paying attention. Like, and I would have expected Keith to really like take umbrage with because that game was bad. The Marlins are a bad defensive team, and he, I know he hates bad defense. Um, I didn't hear one groan or anything from him, or you know, like he was just kind of scoring the game and Ron is just watching in disbelief, but you also see him nodding along as like Gary's calling it. Like he's feeling it the same way we are. It's such a good broadcast booth. Um, and then Gary, like veins popping out of his neck. Oh my God. Yelling is a head off standing from his chair. That might be the closest Gary ever comes to giving birth to a child. Like, like veins wise, uh, you know, energy wise, like that looked like, I mean, that almost looked, 
I don't want to say painful because that would imply that he wasn't having a good time. This is him in his element, right? No, he was pushing that call out. Like by the end of that call, he had no more breath to give and he was pushing the words out. And you're right. It did. It did. It did seem a little painful. And I mean, I've been there. Like he wasn't going to call the rest of that game if they had gotten him out. Like he was not trying to call another inning of that game. That's the other thing too. But oh, yeah, he, he was leaving it all, all out there on that microphone. Uh, every ounce of spittle that he could muster was was on that mic cover. And then the little nonchalant underhand pen toss. Yep. Yeah, I like when he does the underhand one. Sometimes he'll go overhand with it, like, you know, like he's slamming a guitar or something, but it's like, you know, I like when he just stands there and admires what he saw. Um, yeah. Because it was, I mean, it was really special. And just to also, you know, the other development, out, you know, within that was the fact that Michael Conforto got the hit. Um, because since then, he's really kind of springboarded everything into action. And he's yeah. been probably their most consistent, I would say he's been their most consistent hitter aside from Jonathan VR this week. Like VR is a, a force of nature right now that you shouldn't pitch to as long as he's batting lefty, but Michael Conforto is actually looking, this is probably the best he's looked all year. And for him to come out and have that moment after they showed him in the eighth inning in the dugout, basically like snapping, uh, you know, throwing his helmet down, throwing his bat down, um, probably, you know, probably cussing like, to actually, uh, for him to get that kind of moment too, uh, among all of the Mets, because it's his contract year. Like this is a this is pretty make or break for him. And as much as I love Dom, who's having a hard time, and as much as I love McNeil, who's having a hard time, um, I think Conforto was the guy that uh, could have used that the most. Yeah, and it, he did springboard very much so in, in game two that day. There was a whole other baseball game after that. Yeah. Uh, he had uh, the the home run in game two that kind of put the Mets ahead. So um, absolutely a, hu- a huge moment, like a season-defining moment if this team winds up making playoffs. Yeah, definitely. Uh, they'll, they'll make one of those documentaries or whatever, one of those, you know, five days in flushing things. It'll be like like four thumbs in flushing. It'll be like Baez's thumbs and Lindor's thumbs, and it will they'll have like – Jerry, you know, they'll have like Chris Rock, like doing interviews and they'll have like, they'll have a whole thing with the seven line again, like Tony Dacoma will narrate it. Like they'll do it. It will be just like 2015 to the, you know, to the numbers. But then, I mean, then again, here's the thing that we talked about, like in terms of who they're going to have to play to get to really make this happen. Like they're going to have to play some really good teams. They're going to have to beat them. It might be some consolation to know that to make it into the playoffs at this point would mean pulling off a biblical comeback. Like I'm sure that, you know, the Rays fans that do exist or a better example would be the Philly fans that exist right in like 2007, the year before they won the world series, when they, when they shocked us and we blew that lead. Um, I think those fans, despite basically getting annihilated by the Rockies when they got to the playoffs, would still hang that season in the rafters because of the work that they did to get into the playoffs. That's something that with this team, you have a moment like that, that you can hang on to, you can hang your hat on it and, and continue winning games. I mean, really the Mets have like, they can only lose like four more games before 90 wins is out of the picture. I mean, that's probably out of the picture anyway. I mean, you know, just given the kind of streak they would need, but 
it, they have an opportunity, I think, to still do something pretty special, even if the season ends in three days once they get to the playoffs, or even if they make the wild card and get knocked out. I mean, 2016 is another good example, but you know, that would take longer. Yeah. All right. So this is a probably a good point to go to break, um, do a little ad and come right back. We'll see you in just about a minute. And we're back. And let's talk uh, injuries, news and notes a little bit before we get into our little mini mailbag that we did. Uh, and Jack has a little story time for us. That's going to be fun. Um, so first of all, Brad hands a met. That's interesting. Um, we'll see how that goes. He's been uh, booty for much of this year. He was awful for the Blue Jays after the trade deadline. That's got him for nothing. So we'll see how that goes. Second lefty in the bullpen, going to take some pressure off Aaron Luke. Um, injuries, Brandon Nimmo, mild hamstring strain. He's on the shelf. Travis Blankenhorn is up. Tomas Nito also back on the IL after re-aggravating his thumb injury. Um, but Guillaume, James McCann are both back uh, off the injured list. Whole bunch of guys on rehab. Um, Noah Syndergaard's rehab paused because he has COVID. Um, but the guys who are on rehab, Jose Peraza has been playing in Syracuse. Robert Gazelman started a game for St. Lucie over the weekend. Sean Reed Foley, Jake Reed, Steven Nagosik, and Jordan Yamamoto are, are all throwing. Um, Jose Martinez hurt his shoulder on his rehab assignment. Kind of curious to see where he's going but we might get him back still at some point this month so like a whole bunch of dudes are working their way back especially the pitchers um which is you know fascinating because a lot of these dudes were pretty good especially sean reed foley and uh Gisellman when they were healthy this year and then jake reed was pretty impressive in a couple of outings he had um during the stretch against the giants and dodgers yeah I'm, this is sort of where, like, for me, at least the, the roster expansion role just drives me up a wall. Like he gave two spots. We're getting two spots to work with here. Like, I feel like almost all these guys are going to stay down in the minor leagues. Um, They really don't have a place for Jose Peraza right now because every infielder that started that year on the active roster is now on the active roster again. Um, you know, they can't option him. That's the thing, though. So they might just run his rehab clock out down there and then maybe set him free, which would be a kind of sad way to go out because he had some really exciting moments as a Met. Um, Gesellman, I guess, track record-wise, makes the most sense. Uh, but he also has, like, the hardest injury to come back from. He's been on the injured list longer than any of these guys except for Yamamoto, I'm pretty sure. I know Reed is pretty recent. Nagosik is recent. Reed Foley's been on the injured list for a while, and a lot of it kind of stems from the crackdown um, that took place at the end of May. His numbers started to suffer a little bit. Uh, I really, I think that if there is one guy that, like, I would put back in here if I can, because ultimately, like, the Mets having 28 guys is no different from them having 26 guys. Like, they have one extra catcher because their catchers are all hurt, and then, like, Yancy Diaz is the other reliever. I guess I would swap out Yancey for Jake Reed um, or maybe even like, I guess you'd have to like cut Heath Hembry, but I, I would almost rather see Reed pitching games at this point with what he brings than Hembry. His control's a lot better um, and it's like historically been better at the minor league level. I know that's a small sample of the big leagues, but uh, 
Hembry every outing, it's like, it really does feel like a slog. Uh, I certainly don't really have faith in him in like a high leverage situation. Reed has a small sample again, I know, but like, I don't know, man. None of these guys really do. I just think he brings the most uh, of all of them. But yeah, what about you? Reed's interesting because he gets that kind of different angle going with these, you know, the submarine guy, sidearm guy. Yeah. Um, I still am intrigued by Sean Reed fully. I liked a lot of what I saw out of him when he was healthy. And I know that whether it was sticky stuff, crackdown or overuse or whatever, he was kind of, um, he started getting hit around a little bit before he got hurt. Um, and it was like a, an arm inflammation thing. So maybe that was a little overuse. Um, and that was why he was getting hit around. We'll see what his spin rates are like if he comes back up when he comes back up. But I like him as a piece, honestly. I think there's a chance that this guy could be a piece in the Mets bullpen um, going forward because um, he was pretty good when he was good this year. So we'll He's see how that goes. Guy. He definitely has it in him to give you the most innings, I think, of any of them. Yeah, there's also just – I like the intensity a lot. I like the whole squatting thing that he does. It's fine. Um, and so I kind of, I selfishly just kind of want more. I love intense relievers. I really do. Uh, oh, they're great. I mean, usually they're like one and done or something. Some of them stick around like a while with their intensity. Like I know Jason really is a guy that, you know, and Pedro Strope also like he was extremely consistent and he was also consistently like, you know, locked in, in your face as a pitcher, which I don't know, man. I mean, I, I, I enjoyed it. I wasn't a Cubs fan even, and I enjoyed it. Um, so the, the update, I didn't really hash it out with Martinez. I should have provided info here. He last played September 3rd. So whatever happened to his shoulder, they seem to be like content to keep rolling the dice with him. See if he can do anything. Brandon Drury being gone kind of suggests that the role um of like bench bat especially now that dom smith and jd davis have had their at bats curtailed like i don't really know if martinez fits into their plan like again if they have you know 32 to 35 to 40 spaces on that roster to work with you would put him in and plug him in against any one of these crappy lefties he maybe would have even started him against uh josh rogers uh last night because he you know he's not that good but we made him look good right like you do that, but because you have so few spots to give and you have so few games to lose, you pretty much have to roll with what's working. I think that's why VR is like the leadoff man still to this point. Like if this had worked once in April or May, you would have kept trying things maybe, but because you really can only go game by game now, like these are just the things that have to, that have to happen. You don't really have room for somebody who was depth to begin with if we're being totally part you know impartial here yeah i i feel you i wish they had a couple more spots yeah but yeah that is kind of stupid i was talking to my friend about it but like i really you know the thing about 40 is that i guess it, it disrupts competitive balance um for some teams i think it's good because if you're a bad team it gives you incentive to try out more players to see if maybe one of them can stick um, I think it's also good just to get, keep people rested. I think that, uh, when pitchers show up to spring training and they need like, you know, surgeries and whatnot, and they have things wrong with their bodies, it almost always has to do with overuse. And that overuse can sometimes really just be pinpointed back to 
how they were uh, how they were deployed down the run, you know, down the line in a pennant race or something in September. Like those innings, especially that mileage is what builds up the most. Um, I liked having that liberty. Like if we get blown out in a game at any point, we're in really, really big trouble. Like we can't afford to have any like Eikhoff like performance just because what that would entail, you know, going to five or six relievers on a day by day schedule like this, you can't do it anymore. You, you could do it uh, conceivably if you were willing to just punt a game and you had like four or five loose pitchers who you wanted to give innings to just for fun and see what they had. But I, I don't know. I mean, I guess that's not really in the spirit of what Major League Baseball wants. Like they want the best athletes out there, but teams get things wrong all the time. So to have that option, at least, I think is, is worthwhile. And uh, it also like rewards teams that have really, really good depth and can, and can manage that way down the stretch. It's like a nice little bonus for all the work they do over the first five months of the year. It is a special treat for me. This is a special treat for me. Jack, why don't you share your Brooklyn story with us? My Brooklyn story, right? Speaking of uh, speaking of Cuomo, he's not from Brooklyn, right? Is I don't know. From- I'm from New Jersey, man. Why would okay. I know? Oh, he's not from New Jersey. He makes a point that he's from New York. But I went to Brooklyn. Um, I went to Brooklyn with my girlfriend and some of her friends. Uh, I know that Sam had shared his experiences at a Cyclones game. This is the first time I'd been to a Cyclones game in like, three years or so. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, first of all, I got to, I got to see Josh Hatchka and we talked a little bit and that was really fun. Cause Yay. he's a great dude. Uh, he's, he's having an interesting season. Like the, the results have been there, but the organization has kind of been unclear as to where they want him and what they want him to be. They continue to call him up and send him down across triple a double a and a plus. And I, you know, in a way, I think that it's it's unfair that they're doing that to him, but he's also just, uh, you know, really sticking with it and like holding out and he's got a really good attitude as, as we know. So it's something that, you know, I'm sure for him is like, it, it's just another opportunity to like build character. And I think that's also kind of special. Um, they lost, uh, they lost four to nothing. They didn't, they scored, they didn't score at all. They got like three hits uh Jalen Palmer is the guy that like I know that when we went you were or I guess when you went you really had a you you were in a Francisco Alvarez I'm really into Jalen Palmer oh I think Palmer's a dude yeah Palmer just stands out like he like I know that he's massive and he's he's so athletic and he's athletic they're putting him all over the field which I guess this is the time to do it rather than the majors like the Mets always wait till it's too late to put someone out of position but like he looked okay in right field. His arm was a little bit, uh, you know, suspect, like just, you know, just needs to work on like making throws in and stuff. This is my scouting report. This is my like official scouting report, but uh, I really liked him a lot. I'm glad they didn't trade him. He's a Brooklyn guy. So this is all like, I think this was fun for people. He has like a, a he has a little bit of a following like at these games, which is nice. Um but dude, Coney Island is, is popping. Coney Island is a really just great place to be. There was a fireworks show afterwards, which was amazing. Um, yeah. And they had like the little uh, pitching giveaway thing. Did you play that when you went there? The, the what? Where you have to like throw the ball at the, you basically have to throw a pitch and you hit the catcher's mid. It's like this weird wax doll setup. but there's like a, a, a dummy doll with a catcher's mitt and a dummy batter. And if you, 
from basically like 45, 50 feet away. If you hit the mitt two times out of three, it's a small mitt, but if you do it, you win a bobblehead. Oh, um, yeah. You, you never done that. Uh, do you have to pay money for that? I think I may have seen you that. do. You, it's like, yeah, I think I, it's, it's like $4 for three throws. And like, yeah, I, I thought about it. It seemed a bit excessive. I tried it. I got the bobblehead, dude. Oh yeah. I got the bobblehead. Yeah. I missed the first one. And then I hit the other two and it was like, it was awesome. They gave me a purred happily giveaway doll or giveaway bobblehead from uh, parks and recreation. It had absolutely nothing to do with the Brooklyn Cyclones at all. Um, it was a Cyclones giveaway, but I was kind of staring at it. That's so that's fascinating. I went to a, a Syracuse Mets game. Um, I forget when exactly this was, but they it was like the end of the season. It might have been when they were still the Chiefs before the Mets came in. But uh, uh, it was like the end of the season, and instead of doing like a singular bobblehead giveaway, they were giving away every single bobblehead that they had extra stock of. Oh my god! So it was just like you got a random bobblehead. Could you ask for like two or three of the same one? No, it was like you just get one. You just get one. It was like it came in a special like package that you didn't know what was inside until you opened it yeah it's fun to see like minor league stadiums also because they really at least in brooklyn like they take a lot of pride in the players that they do uh graduate so much to the point that like you kind of wonder like hmm, is this like a is this like you you i mean it forces you to consider how many players get rung up through the minor leagues for you to actually like come out with like three big leaguers like so many dudes just get left there and they know they don't make it up further so the ones that do make it to the majors like you realize like they have to have been really 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 good as cyclones like they had a paul seawald banner up like a, a paul seawald like number 19 or whatever and i i i was staring at it i was just like they really and then i was curious so i looked around the other ones and everyone else was like they have like an ahmed rosario one they had a conforto one they had a Justin Turner one. They kind of cheated and had a couple guys who were like rehabbing. Like they had a Jose Reyes one where he had like his, his like canary yellow sleeve and his, you know, weird beard or whatever. Like he's just, I mean, he's, he's his own thing. I don't get it, but um, yeah, it's, there's a weird, I think like personality about those stadiums, but I would totally go back. I love minor league ballparks. Yeah. I love minor league ballparks. I love any chance I can get to go to a minor league game. I do because every, like, I just, I can gush about minor league baseball so much. Like I, it's such a fun environment. It's so laid back in terms of major league sports. It's like, I don't have to go and care about the outcome of the game. I can just like have a good time and like watch these players. Some of whom I'm never going to think about ever again. And some of whom are going to become legitimately good major league baseball players. Right. Uh, it's just, it's a lot of fun. Um, so we did, we tried to do a little mailbag uh, a couple days ago and uh, it, it didn't work uh, out to, you know, what we, what we hoped. Um, we got four responses to the mailbag question. The mailbag question was, you know, favorite moment from the Mets legendary 2015 Labor Day series in DC. Uh, drop a thought or two for a chance for a shout out. I think we'll just, you know, shout out the four responses that we got. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there are like, there are a lot of memories, but also like, I think there are enough that like we could read the four and just like each have our own two and it would probably be sufficient. I was just trying to get engagement, uh, you know, how we could. It was tricky because I was going to post that like in the middle of 
the nine nothing game because it looked like a sleeper, a laugher, and then of course it wasn't. So I'm glad I didn't. But um, yeah, at a Russ underscore ninety seven, Alex Russell. Um, I have to say the right slide and fist pump. David Wright was the Mets, and despite all the other heroics that weekend, that moment felt like the final nail in the Nats coffin. I think that's interesting. That last point that it would be the final nail because I don't. I think it was the final nail in that game. Like when he did, when he scored those runs and they were pouring on insurance, like they totally won. They, they were going to win that game, but um, like the, the two games after that were also like very much in doubt. They could have still lost a game in the standings. It was like, wasn't it a three game series and they were three games up. So the Nats had a chance to come back and tie and the Mets instead swept them. Yeah. That sounds right. I think that's how the, the, the games right. were arranged there, but yeah, so that's Alex, but I do. The right slide was just great. For people, for, people forget the context of the right slide that David was on first with his back injury and all that stuff, mobility yeah. limited, and Cespedes hit that ball, and he hit a piss missile yeah. off that tall right center field fence in Washington. Like, he hit that ball 110 miles an hour. It was an absolute shot off the bat, mm-hmm. uh, and – even despite it being hit so hard and being played in by Bryce Harper, like relatively well, right scored from first. Yeah. It was like a kind of microcosm of his return to the team. Yeah. That he was even just simply scoring from first base on a double was like, uh, this big thing for him. Um, you know, he was putting his body on the line for this team just to score from first base on the double. And, like, I think that the the fist pump after the slide very much was indicative of, like, a pressure falling off of him. Yeah. Um, that he can still – obviously, he came back in the lineup and hit that home run in Philadelphia. But um, it was almost like he was continuously having to prove that he could still play baseball. Yeah. And that, like – it seems so innocuous just scoring from first on a double, but I feel like I real I've still to this day feel like that was such a big thing for him personally that yeah. he could just still do that. Yeah, definitely a moment to prove that like he wasn't just the guy that had come back from an injury and was gonna like play a role on the team. Like he was going to be like in the middle of what this team was doing, which I think is just like is really special given what he had to go through and what he obviously continue to go through after that um matt at uh mr3402 the finale to the walkathon by drew store and when the tying run came in this was fun yeah this was the game after the right game when they they were down seven to one i always feel like between that nine nothing game yesterday and the kurt suzuki game a couple years ago it's just like uh a debt that we have to pay for the nationals allowing us to come back in that one game, the way that we did. Cause that was, I don't think there was anything more embarrassing and crushing to their run at the playoffs than that moment when they were down, when they, when we were down seven to one and they, the bases loaded. And I think it was like Cespedes hit a Granderson walked and then Cespedes doubled in three to make it seven to five. And then they brought in like Blake Trinan who walked two, and then drew Storen who walked two, like, it was, if that had happened to my team, I probably would have had a heart attack. Like I probably would have actually needed like medical help 
watching that happen. It wasn't even, these weren't even like nine, 10 pitch at bats. These were four pitches, five pitches, four pitches. Like they had nothing. Yeah. It was like watching. I, I, it, I, I don't know. I can't really come up with like the, uh, the, the analogy here. It was like, watching. it was watching a train wreck. It was like watching the wheels coming off of a car as it was driving. Yeah. It's like, Oh, this is messy but I'm going to keep watching. And it, it, the Mets like ended Drew Storen's career that week, effectively. Yeah. He was, he was never the same pitcher. He probably wasn't really like the same pitcher going into that game, which may have been why he had that trouble. But that was really, I mean, there were moments where Storen was like missing on pitches that were like two to three inches off the plate. And he was literally like giving it to the umpire, like begging for calls because he had no, he had nothing. Um, I mean, that's probably the weakest I've ever seen another opponent. Uh, that was easily weaker than any moment the Cubs had when we swept them. Like that was really, I mean, that team, man, Matt Williams was nationals are very lucky and I'm, I'm sure their fans are very grateful that it's not Matt Williams running the show there anymore. Um, uh sean okula at scooter okula said i desperately want to say dario alvarez striking out bryce harper but it has to be the cespedes home run or the new home run i count like six or seven legit solid options though there's so many moments glad we're talking new and i always love talking kirk new he played football i don't know if you knew that uh he did. yeah yeah i don't know if anyone's ever mentioned that he that the whole series had so many moments and he's right. Like Sean is a good point here that it's hard to just pinpoint like one moment that was like, Oh my God, like this was the point, you know, because it was just like the Mets just kept throwing friggin' haymakers on the the nationals in this series. Every single win was so demoralizing to Washington and on the, the flip side. So, enthralling and energy energizing for the Mets that like, that's where the world series run came from. Like that's where it came from is they just beat up on this rival over and over and over again in the most satisfying way possible. Yeah. Yeah. I think that one thing that was a special, I, I like the new and heist mention, not so much because of my enduring crush on Kirk new and heist, but more so because like, of what new and heist I think represented on that team. And it, it, it didn't, I think in the scheme of things, like he didn't represent a lot. He was like the, basically the 25th guy on their playoff roster. Like, but if you think about it this way as a fan, right. How many times did we watch our seasons get ended by dudes like, like Connor Gillespie or Greg Dobbs or Willie Harris, or like, like, Lane Thomas is a little bit better than all those guys, but that's the example right now, like Lane Thomas, right? Like we get beat by Lane Thomas or, or, you know, Christian Cologne. I could do this for years, right? To actually have a moment where you have your guy who gets to do that to another team is priceless. And for it to have happened the way it did, because basically I guess what happened was, so I got my walks wrong. The Nats walked in the, the tying run with the bases loaded. They had a couple walks in a row, but they did not walk in the go-ahead run. Neuenheis hit the go-ahead home run, and he did it like the inning later. Um, I was like in the bathroom before the inning started. So when I come out and I see that it's 8-7, I'm thinking like, 
like someone hit a home run or like, or like, you know, just someone must have, yeah, someone must have hit a home run. Like, was it Granderson? Uh, was it maybe like Darno? Was it like, could like Uribe or Kadire off the bench? And then like, they show the slow motion of Neuenheis finishing his swing, like on the changeup by Papelbon and like the bat flip. And I like, I, I couldn't believe it. it. I was speechless. Like that was, that was, that's, that's probably my favorite moment. I'm glad that I got my favorite moment out of the way. Cause that was probably it, but we do have one more. And then we also have yours. Um, Kyle, a, Kyle Lofren says, uh, not one of the ones in the suite, but the Escobar game ending five, four, three, double play in game two for me, which like, I don't even remember that one all that much, frankly. Oh yeah. Nats almost tied that game. It stayed eight, seven. And they had like first and third one out. And Familia got a game ending double play. Yeah. He was clutch. He was for, there was a time between early 2015 and like the all-star break of 2016 where like, Jerry's Familia was maybe like one of the five best closers in all of baseball. Yeah. No one talks about it. Yeah. I mean, all time saves leader in a single season with the team, um, throwing BBs that moved eight inches yeah. diagonally. Like he was, he was excellent. Uh, my favorite moment. Again, I don't know if I have a specific one in mind because there's just so many. I also really love the, New and Heist Homer because it's one against Jonathan Papelbon. Always, yeah. always fun to beat up on him. Like the New and Heist Homer in general, because again, like like you, I love Kirk New and Heist. Mm-hmm. Um, the like unending badgering of Drew Storen by Cespedes. Yeah. Um, also fun, like that home run into the bullpen, elite moment. Yeah, that was the last salvo of that series. Like, that's the game that they swept, I think. That was, like, the last ding they got in on him before, you know. I just love the series, and I like thinking about it. It makes my brain happy. Yeah, makes me happy, too. It was a lot of fun. I mean, in a perfect world, this comeback gets completed before the Mets go to Atlanta, and they're clinching, like, uh, at home against the Marlins, but I don't think that's possible. They they haven't done that in a long time, but I think that could be a lot of fun. Yeah, that would be mathematically difficult, but yeah, it is fun to remember. So why don't we also remember some guys and then uh, then get out of here? Yeah, sure. Um, we didn't really talk much about Brad Hand, uh, like that acquisition. I was not. I think they really like. I was even in the moment, I was happy that they chose Aaron Loop over him just for like contract reasons. Um, picking him up now in the state that he's in reminds me a lot of when in a pennant race a couple of years ago, they rolled the dice on a former like elite left handed reliever named Eric O'Flaherty, oh. who <laughs> he had really, really, really good stuff with the Braves, had pretty good stuff with the athletics for like a year or two. And then in the middle of this season, I mean, he's open about it on Twitter. Like he's 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 constantly referencing how that season he was so bad that no one team no team really like wanted to give him a chance after that after all the success he had. But like, the Mets acquired him on waivers, thinking like, if we can get this guy right, because I think Jerry Blevins had like broken his arm a second time, so they didn't have a lefty. Like they were John Neese was the only lefty really like in their pen. Uh, that they had in those days. So they figured if they got O'Flaherty going, it would be like this huge thing. And 
I mean, hopefully the Brad Hand experiment doesn't end like that. I mean, if if Brad Hand can give us like nine or ten really good outings between now and the end of the season, uh, I don't really care what he did in the past or what he'll do in the future. Um, if he performs like Ergo Flaherty did, uh, I mean, I'll just, you know, I'll just feel better about my initial uh, assumption that Aaron Loop was better. Man, <laughs> invoking Eric O'Flaherty's name when talking about a, a Brad Hand right now in the context, that's dire. That it's is mean. It is mean. I've never done that before. I've never been like, oh, oh yeah, this guy reminds me of insert dude with like negative 0.5 wins above replacement you you're know a, you're asking for it in that case my friend yeah well i, I, I also mean, yeah i also by happenstance am remembering a lefty reliever um one who had a role in that series in washington and in fact was mentioned in the mailbag i'm gonna remember dario alvarez yeah who like was never good for the mets but like like only appeared in like a, a, 10 games for the mets over over 14 and 15 seems like he was in more, but he had yeah. some moments. It he felt like hard. He, he was like 94, 95 from the left side with a wipeout slider. Yeah. Wound up going over the Braves and having uh like a handful of appearances for them in 2016 before moving on to the Rangers. And then in 2017 uh, was like half decent in 20 games for the Rangers. So who knows? I mean, he was like just kind of low-key good. And it's also weird because he was like kind of the yeah, El, uh, Alberto Baldonado before Alberto Baldonado, who we saw this weekend in Washington, who was with the Mets as a, as a lefty reliever type dude in the minors for a long time. Right. Yeah, knows? that, I don't know, man. That was, he was, he, he, um, Alvarez, I think was somebody that like, before they got Blevins that spring, they were like, considering getting him prepared for like a role in that pen as like a lefty like he was it was a bunch of dudes like him that they were like holding on to like I think Hansel Robles even though he's not a lefty like they had a lot of like youngish relievers on their 40 man Robles was the one that stuck but like there was like him there was Eric Goodell there was Akil Morris and um yeah it's it's a different era that I like to think about yeah double left-handed reliever remembering today that's right aaron loop needs the help yeah god god help you brad hand yeah all right good place to put a pin in it anything else to add for the for the for the cause um no let's go mads okay let's go mads all right. Oh, my God. Episode 52 of the Plus Good Evening Podcast. In the books for Jack Hendon. Thanks for the support. Thanks for the listen. Uh, we'll see you next week. And Mets fans, have a pleasant good evening.